the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Really difficult story in the news. Now, thankful that that justice was served. Uh, but it's the story of Josh Duggar, okay? Josh Duggar, on, uh, back on the 9th of December, uh, was found guilty of possessing child sex abuse materials and also receiving uh, materials as well. He is going to be going to prison. It's just a terrible story. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's it's a story full of evil. Uh, and uh, I don't really want to talk about the story except to say I'm happy that he was found guilty. Like every now and then you go, okay, justice is working. Like yeah. you, you wish these things never happened. And people can Google it. Y'all know the Duggar family and kind of the reality TV and all of this stuff. Right. I want to read for you what got me interested in wanting to talk to you about this story a little bit was something his sister said. Her name is uh, Ginger uh, Voello. She posted a lengthy statement Sunday on their Instagram account, her account and her husband's account, talking about processing the week's events and all their experience. And so let me just read a portion because, Aubrey, I think this is important what she talks about. She says, uh, we are saddened for the victims of horrific child abuse. We are also saddened for Josh's family, his wife and precious children. Here we go. We are saddened for the dishonor this has brought upon Christ's name. Josh claims to be a Christian. When a professing follower of Jesus is exposed as a hypocrite, the response of many will be to challenge the integrity of Jesus himself. They'll question the legitimacy of a savior whose so-called followers privately delight in the sins they publicly denounce. This is why the Apostle Paul told religious hypocrites that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you in Romans 2. For Josh, we fear for his soul. Wow. I I read that and was like, oh, that is heartbreaking. So obviously, I want to... Again, say the primary focus of this story is on the children who were victimized. Absolutely. I I understand that. Uh, But what she said there about hypocrisy and dishonoring the name of Christ and the effect it has, I kind of had to read it again. I'm like, this Mm. is so important for us to grasp uh, on these large scales like Josh Duggar, but also in our everyday activities. As you heard me read that, Aubrey, what were your thoughts? Yeah, and, and let me just make a very small caveat. Although I think this is uh, this should be understood, but I like to be really clear about this because mm-hmm. sometimes language like um, sin is used, and that is true. This is sin. It's also criminal. So yes. I, I yes. like to He's just be to very clear. Like this is all, not just sin. This is criminal behavior. Okay. So with that in mind, you know what I I think um, I'm I'm really impressed. I mean, this must have been painful to have to even say this out loud. Yeah. But I'm impressed that his sister is more concerned with the reputation of Jesus than with her brother. And Mm -hmm. I think there's so much that's, I mean, spot on here because the reality is God has created us as his image bearers. And what that means is we are here on this planet 
specifically to represent God. And for those of us, and that's true of all humanity, Mm -hmm. but for those Mm -hmm. of us who are in Christ, we are specifically planted where we are to represent Jesus and Mm. to share Jesus and to remember that we are ministers of reconciliation and we are ambassadors for Christ. All the language that the New Testament uses about us. Um, The Old Testament calls us living statues. Like we are literally here to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so when the hands and feet of Jesus are used in criminal evil ways, then it's not Jesus at work. Mm-hmm. And I, and I ultimately, I think all of us Christians need to remember who we represent. Yeah. And that this is not just about like between us and the person that we offended, but like there is something greater at stake and that is the integrity of Christ. Yeah. yeah. And and I think in our own hearts, one thing, I mean, I'm all over the place on this. No, keep going. This is good. One, we need to, in our own souls, when this kind of things happen, we have to remember not to put human being, sinful human beings up on a pedestal. And we have to look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to mm-hmm, Jesus. Like mm-hmm. Jesus is the only example of perfect humanity, right? Like right. that's it. And so we have to look to Jesus to find Jesus, period. Otherwise, people are going to let us down. But when it's this severe, I think the call for all of us is to like denounce it like she did. I appreciate that she did that. And then just say, look, this is not of Jesus. God hates this. This person doesn't represent Jesus. And for all of us to kind of go back to like, okay, the way I'm living, small and big, am I honoring God on the inside and the outside as well? It's a, yeah. this is a call to, it's real. None, not all of us are criminal pedophiles like this. <laughs> right. Okay. So let me be clear about that. At the end of the day, this is sort of a wake up call to all of us. Like, are we the same on the inside as we are on the outside? And are we representing our Lord and Savior well? That's good. So how do you, there's a fine line here, right? Like uh, I'm a representative of Jesus that raises the specter for me of how I'm supposed to live my life. What, you know, the there, it raises the importance of how I live my day-to-day life. It can also yeah. just heap a ton of guilt on me Sure. because, you know, again, while hopefully all of us listening don't do what Josh Duggar did, yeah. uh, you know, we are going to sin. We are going to fail. We are going to do things, yeah. uh, again, hopefully not of the criminal variety, but of yeah. the non-Christ-like variety. How do we walk that line then, Aubrey, between, okay, this this spurs me on. I need this front of mind. I need to remember who I'm representing versus, gosh, I'm going to fail. And now I just feel guilty because what if people don't, you know, accept Jesus because of what I do? How do you walk that line? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things. One is in this quote where she talks about people questioning the legitimacy of a savior whose so-called followers privately delight in sins they publicly denounce. Mm. So I, I think a step is to be the same. So like if we fail, we sin, I'm not saying you have to go before all of your social media followers and say, oh, I screwed up again. I I cheated on my taxes or whatever. But are there people in your life that you're being totally authentic and transparent with? So you're not pretending to be something that you aren't. I think that's one very clear way. And then I think the other thing is like, there comes a time for all believers when we have to By the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot do this in our own strength. By the power of the Holy Spirit, begin living in our Christ identity and no longer our Adam and Eve identity. And I'm not Mm. saying perfect. We will not be perfect. But what I'm saying is like, are we walking in a way that is surrendered to Jesus day after day after day, returning to him, re-gospeling ourselves, all of that language we use? Or are we stuck in our old self and just constantly saying, oh, I'm I'm so terrible. I'm so unworthy. I'll never find victory. I'll never experience freedom. I'll never be able to live for Jesus because I'm so broken and so sinful. 
Like at some point, are you the new person Christ has made you or not? Can you begin walking in freedom again with the power of the Holy Spirit, with your Christian community, not in a legalistic way, but in like a free to serve God kind of way? Yeah, good. I, I want to read what they what they ended up their Instagram post. This is the sister, one of the sisters of Josh Duggar after the after he was convicted of just kind of horrific uh child pornography crimes and other things. She said, yet amidst our sadness, there is gratitude. We are grateful that God is a God of justice who cares for the innocent and the helpless. And of all the people in this world, he especially loves children who are among the most vulnerable. This reality makes the existence of sex trafficking and child abuse one of the most horrific evils imaginable. And it is an evil that God hates. I just appreciate those mm. words. That is, yeah. that is could not have been easy uh, for her to write. Well, coming up next, uh, it's Christmas time, and we want to talk about uh, some fascinating stories behind the best love songs of Christmas, the best, the great traditions of Christmas. We're going to unpack some of the history of some of the things we all do at Christmas time with Ace Collins. Uh, he's an author of stories behind the best love songs of Christmas and stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. We're going to spend some time with Ace Collins next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, if there's one thing we love that people have learned, it's Christmas, right? You've had your tree up for like four months now. <laughs> I have. It's a problem. <laughs> uh, we we love the Christmas season. And with that in mind, we're excited to bring on the author of a book called Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas and also Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. His name is Ace Collins. Ace, how you doing today? I'm doing great and wonderful and sitting in a house that looks like it's decorated for a Hallmark movie. That's how we do Christmas here, too. Oh! So it's... Uh, Identify what you wanting to get into it. Yeah. That's outstanding. Ace, uh, before we jump into it, especially we're going to be, begin by talking about songs. Aubrey and I are both pastors. We love Christmas songs. But before we do that, I would love for our people to get to know you a little bit. So why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you? I am been an author for, for 30 years, done over 100 books, just had the 100th one released, do both novels and nonfiction. Uh, the books we're talking about today are my best selling books of all time. But it is it is interesting in the fact that my wife is a university professor. She teaches ed. Uh, and I, uh, even though I'm from Arkansas originally, was raised in central Illinois. So I have kind of an Illinois connection with you all before I end up going back down south more than Arkansas right now. Oh, that is so fantastic. I love that you're an Illinois boy. So you're, you're at home with us today. Well, we are so thrilled, Ace, that you're with us. We, we're, like Brian said, we're passionate about Christmas. So this is a very fun interview for us. And, you know, one of my favorite Christmas songs is Oh Holy Night. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. I, the fact that it still connects today is incredible. Would you mind talking to us about the history? I know it's sort of strange and haunting. And so I'd love to hear the history behind that song. Yeah, we could spend an entire hour on it. I will give you the short version of A Holy Night. About 180 years ago, a man in Paris was asked to write a poem for the Christmas Eve Mass. He wrote it on the way to, excuse me, it was a small town outside of Paris. He wrote it on the way to Paris. He was so enthralled with it that he took it to a friend of his who wrote opera music. And the friend looked at it and said, yes, I agree it would make a great song, but I don't feel qualified to write the music for it. He leaned upon him until he wrote the music for it. 
it, it absolutely charmed the audience in that small church that first Christmas Eve service. And within five years, it swept France as the most popular carol in France. And then it was kicked out of services in France because it was deemed too secular. Now, we have problems believing that listening to it today. But the man who wrote the music to the song was Jewish. And when the church found out about it, they decided they didn't want a Jewish guy writing a Christmas song. It's at least the music for it. Well, it came to the United States as an anti-slavery song because in the third verse it says, "In uh, uh, the slave is our brother, and in his name, Christ's name, all oppression shall cease. So change shall be free. I mean, so that is how it was sung in the United States for until after the Civil War would begin the Christmas song. We've heard the story about Silent Night stopping World War One for 24 hours. Well, long before that happened, depression. Franco War, a Frenchman jumped out of a foxhole and started singing Oh Holy Night, and it became the song that brought peace to, the, to earth for 24 hours anyway, as they halted their aggressions against each other to celebrate together. And finally, in 1906, a man named Fessenden in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, did something that everyone said was impossible. What did he do? He created a transmitter that could transport wirelessly the human voice. And people in newsrooms who were waiting for dots and dashes and people on ships who were waiting for Morse code and people in weather departments and train stations suddenly heard a human voice over their speaker. They were enthralled because this was impossible. That speaker read the second chapter of Luke and then he picked up his violin and the first song ever played on the radio was Oh Holy Night. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Let me give you another song. This is so fun for us. Aside. Let me let me give you another song. This one is more modern, I would say, compared to the other ones. And it's also people really love to argue about this song. Help us understand the contemporary classic Mary Did You Know. Mark Lowry, uh, who I describe as a raccoon in human form because he has so much energy. Um, <laughs> he really was assigned to write the uh, program for Living Christmas Tree. So he was writing the words that went in between the carols. And he got to thinking, if I was a reporter in interviewing Mary, the mother of Jesus, what would I ask? And it's, that really led him to write this song. It took him two years to find somebody to write the music for it. He tried several different people until he found a harmonica player, ironically enough, that could write the music for this. And it really did look at Mary in a different light, which proves that there's always a different point of view you can find if you look long enough. Or 2,000 years later, nobody had thought of a Christmas song in that way. Skip Ewing then later would write a song that was very popular in country music called It Wasn't His Child, which was about Joseph, that looks at it from Joseph's point of view. And I think those two contemporary carols are some of the most powerful things in the world because they focus on the elements of the man and the woman who raised the Son of God here on earth. And what an overwhelming experience that must have been. And I think that's why it resonates us with us so much today, because we know how, how overwhelming parenting can be, you know, our ch- own children. Imagine raising the Son of God. Mm, that's the, oh, so beautiful. Ace, um, you know, before we popped on, you were telling us kind of a kind of an interesting story about your own publishing experience. And the fact now that you're at 100 books, 
Um, I think our listeners would love to hear what you were telling us about when you, how many times this book in particular got rejected and what that might mean for, what's a good lesson for all of us. So can you talk about that story? Yeah, I spent 10 years shopping this book to uh, 24 different publishers. It was rejected 27 different times before Sounders and eventually bought it. Uh, Cindy Lambert Hayes was the uh, acquisitions editor who saw the potential in it 10 years after I started doing it. People ask me, well, why didn't you give up? And, and you don't give up on a good idea. You don't give up on something you believe in. And so I think the dynamic of that, and I've used it in a lot of devotionals with college kids over the years, is just because you share your faith and somebody doesn't grab it, somebody doesn't latch onto it, somebody doesn't listen, doesn't mean you, you're forever defeated. You just have to find the right set of ears. You have to find the right heart at the right time. And so I think it's therefore one of the great lessons that I learned all these stories behind songs have inspired me during the season. It makes Christmas so much richer. But what I went through to find a home for this book that is now my best-selling book ever and has been translated in who knows how many different languages, how it got there is a lesson in faith that I still live by to this day. You just don't give up on something you believe in. You continue to share it. You continue to find ways to knock on that door and hope somebody listens on the other side. Yeah. Uh, Ace Collins, again, is the author of Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. Also, another one called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. We're going to unpack that book a little bit. This might be difficult. Aubrey and I did a top five list the other day of our favorite Christmas songs. I actually chose Oh Holy Night as my number one Christmas song. This might be like asking you to choose between your children. But uh, if you had to choose your favorite Christmas song, what would you choose? My favorite Christmas song, um, you know, of all time, probably when you look at it, and I'm going to actually step away from the carols just a second and, uh, and tell you, Ben Crosby sing White Christmas, Matt King Cole sing the Christmas song, and Elvis sing Blue Christmas. And so those three things uh, really start making the Christmas bright for me because those are the traditional songs. And the fact that White Christmas was first sung by Bean Crosby on radio 80 years ago this Christmas Eve even brings it into sharper focus because America had just gone to war and people were scared that they would never see their loved ones again and at White Christmas on that Christmas Eve when Bean introduced it became a secular prayer if you will that brought comfort and hope to a nation. That's awesome. Again, Ace Collins, you can find him at acecollins.com on Twitter at acecollins. The other book we're talking about is called Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. Let me frame the question this way, Ace. What's your favorite family tradition? What's your favorite Christmas tradition? And then maybe give us the story behind that tradition. You know, I think that my favorite family tradition is having blue lights on a Christmas tree because my grandmother always had a Christmas tree with all blue lights. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the colors of lights, ironically enough, the colors of Christmas actually mean something when you know something behind it. And blue stands for love. Purple, if you see a purple light, back in the days when they were teaching these things, purple candles, purple robes stood for royalty. Yellow stands for the light that came into the world when, when Jesus arrived. And by the way, it was Martin Luther who actually tied the first candle on a tree and lit it, telling his children that this, is the, this represents the light that came into a dark world when Jesus was born. And so, you know, lights really do have a a deep Christian impact. But you look at red, the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. You know, um, you look at white, if you have a white ornament or a white light, it's the purity of Christ. 
So for a Christian, all of those different colors mean something. So when I see the lights on the Christmas tree, I naturally think of all of those different colors. As far as the the tradition that I think most Christians kind of avoid and don't think about, uh, well, there are two of them, actually. One is Xmas, and for the first thousand years or so, the church actually wrote Christmas with an X. X-M-A-S. And why? Because X was the first, le- first letter in Christ's name. And, and so um, and people who couldn't read recognized that X as standing for Jesus Christ. You know, And it was. The X was the first letter in Christ's name in the Greek alphabet. And so it meant in mass meant worship. So they would see an X and they would go worship Christ. So if Paul or Timothy saw Xmas written out, they would read it as Christmas. They wouldn't read it as taking Christ out of Christmas. They would read Christmas, but it was putting Christ into Christmas. And if I think if you know that, you can use that as, as rather than a, a, a point where everything explodes. You can actually use it as a, as a teaching lesson and, a, and an opportunity to witness as well. Uh, but the, the thing I love the most is mistletoe. Because, you know, I jokingly tell my kids all the time that, you know, we should call mistletoe Christmas, not not mistletoe, because, you know, it, it has become the kissing point of Christmas. Right. Well, a thousand years ago, when, when the early missionaries were going to, to, to reach the Vikings and the Celts and, and the Druids, uh, these people looked at the mistletoe plant as being something mysterious and something powerful. As a matter of fact, if there are bands of warriors in a tree, in, underneath a tree that had mistletoe, they had to find a way to seek peace. It was the plant of peace. Why was it mysterious to them? Because they believed that trees died in the wintertime, and yet this, this plant grew out of this dead wood and stayed alive and thrived in the midst of the wintertime. The early missionaries seized on this and used it as a track, a living track, if you will. They pointed out that that plant growing out of that piece of dead wood represented Christ, who the cross, being nailed to a cross, could not even kill. The greenery represented eternal life. It also represented the fact that if you believed in Christ, even in the darkest, longest, coldest, most oppressive days, that he would be with you. Your faith would live. The red berries, and they had both red and, uh, berries and white berries on mistletoe plants in this area. The red berries represented the blood of Christ that was shed. The white berries mm-hmm. represented his purity. The people, when they converted to Christianity, took this lesson that was taught through the mistletoe plant and, and used it as a symbol. They would actually put mistletoe over their, their door to of their home to just tell people they were Christians. They would put it over a baby's crib to remind them to pay for that child. And guess what? They wanted their bride and groom to remember faith as they went through life and emphasize that if you had faith, you could make it through the toughest, most roughest, most miserable times. And so the bride and groom were married underneath a mistletoe plant. And a thousand years later, we still do what that bride and groom did under a mistletoe plant, and that's kiss. So if we knew the whole story about why it was associated with the kissing, we could actually use it as a track every year at Christmas to explain faith. Man, I have some mistletoe hanging up in my hall, and I'm thinking about that totally different now. I love that, Ace. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, You know, you're obviously passionate about the history behind Christmas songs and Christmas traditions and how they point to Jesus. I I wonder if, I'm sure you've thought through this, why do you think Christmas songs and Christmas traditions matter so much? 
Because Christmas songs and Christmas traditions are the one thing that come back each and every year. Um, they come back and we are reminded when we see a, see a certain thing, like a blue light for me reminds me of my grandmother. A certain song might remind, remind you of your parents or, or something that happened in your life or a loved one. And when we hear those songs, when we see that Christmas pageant at church, when we see a certain ornament or we see wrapping paper or whatever it is that triggers those memories for us, the, those past times become so real. We remember them differently than we remember other things in our life. They have multiple dimensions. You can smell the smells of the kitchen. You can taste the food that your grandmother made. Suddenly you're eight or nine years old again, and you're in that environment, and you can picture everything. And the reason for that is because it comes back each and every year for five or six weeks. I thought, you know, I say this all the time. Dinah Shore charted uh, in music over 400 times. We don't remember much about her today because she didn't have a Christmas hit. If you have a Christmas hit like Dean Crosby did, who actually had three major Christmas hits, or Elvis, or the Carpenters, or you know, or modern people like even Mariah Carey. They talk about you're essentially, from a musical standpoint, immortal because you're going to come back each and every Christmas because people cling to those songs as a part of their tradition. And, and so, it's just something that comes back and actually comes into our hearts and warms us and reminds us of Christmas past and brings together all of those details of Christmas past in, in, in a manner that can't be duplicated at any other time of the year. And it's a universal thing that we all feel. That's great. Uh, all right. The book is called Stories Behind the Best Love Songs of Christmas. So with the last two minutes or so that we have here, Ace, let's have you tell us about one more song. Tell us about the mysterious origins of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is the oldest complete song that we still sing at Christmas. And think about this. Hundreds of thousands of Christmas songs have been written. And O Come, Come, Emmanuel, we are still singing. It was written by some unknown monk, you know, a cleric, you know, 1,100 years ago and sung in little cathedrals by monks. And you can still hear them singing that. And you can tell by the, by the simplicity of the melody and the fact that it's not really vocally demanding that it was meant to be sung by everyone. Only night demands that you have a great vocal range. This song does not. You know, it's about the seven O's. Each, each, each verse differs with a different O and the seven different interpretations of, of the way that Jesus enters our hearts, our lives, and, and, and responds to us. It is a great lesson in music. And there may be one song that we sing that actually has goes back further than O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but it is the song that we sing that is still complete. The other song that I think we need to end, end with today that's really important, and I can tell it real quickly, is if you go back 600 years in old England, there's a song that I sang as a kid in a church in Illinois that I wondered, why in the world do we sing this song? And it's, it's God rest you merry gentlemen. Why would God want happy people to swing? Think about that. Well, in old England, the word rest, in the time the song was written 600 years ago, meant make or keep. God make you merry, gentlemen. And it totally changes the meaning of the song. And by the way, the word merry back then had several different meanings as well. It's the reason the English say happy Christmas and we say merry Christmas because they were saying happy Christmas because Mary had several different meanings five, six hundred years ago. It only means happy in England now, but it didn't back then. Mary also meant great, powerful, or mighty. And so the way we probably should be singing that song, but, you know, kind of like Robin Hood and his merry men, it was Robin Hood and his mighty men. Mary Orlinquid, it was the most powerful nation in the world. 
And so we should be singing, God rest you, married gentlemen, this way. God make you mighty, gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ your Savior was born on Christmas Day. And every time I sign an autograph in one of these Christmas books, I sign it, Mighty Christmas. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Ace Collins again. Uh, two of his books, Stories Behind the Best Loved Songs of Christmas, also Stories Behind the Great Traditions of Christmas. But as we said at the beginning, Ace has authored more than 100 books. So let me encourage you to go to acecollins.com. That's acecollins.com. You can learn much more about Ace and his books. You can connect with them on Twitter at Ace Collins. Ace, this was really fun for us. Thanks for doing this and have yourself a mighty Christmas, our friend. Have a mighty Christmas to y'all as well. And let's make visiting with y'all a Christmas tradition as well. We would love that. We would love that. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to be joined by a regular guest and really someone who's become a friend. Sarah Zylstra. She's the senior writer and faith and work editor for the Gospel Coalition. She's also the co-author of Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. And we are so excited to talk to her about a couple articles. The first one, Sarah, I, I just want to dive right in. We had you on a few weeks ago to talk about the story you covered on some conjoined twins. And apparently there's an update. So could you fill our listeners in on the story itself and then what the update is? I would love to. Yes. So um, earlier this year, boy, maybe it was even, let me check when their birthday was. There was a pair of twins who were born to um, Dwight and Stephanie Castle, who Dwight is a pastor at a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and they were conjoined. So they're connected about from their belly buttons to just in their chest area, basically like like their stomach area. Mm. Um, their liver was conjoined and some of their small intestines and a little bit of the lining around their heart was conjoined. And so, um, they have been in the NICU now for, oh gosh, um, a long time. I want to say they were born in maybe May. Mm -hmm. Um, so they've been in the NICU for a long time. They're waiting for them to get big enough to attempt, um, to separate them. Um, this is just as challenging as you might imagine. Dwight and Stephanie also have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old. And because of COVID, their whole family couldn't be together. Mm. Um, and so they have been juggling their time. Um, the, the hospital that you go to if you have conjoined twins is in Philadelphia. And so they've been there. They live, of course, in Birmingham. And so uh, partway through, they brought the kids up to live with them there. And it has just been enormously challenging. And they have been clinging on to the Lord with both hands as hard as they can through this whole um, situation. So last Friday, it hasn't even been a week yet, the girls went into surgery um, and they the first incision they made around 11 o'clock and then around five o'clock, they were separate. <gasps> yep. So they're separated. They The surgery was more complicated than the surgeons had anticipated, um, especially around the bowel areas. They had to do a lot of deciding in the moment which girl gets which body part or what connections they can make from scratch or what parts they can remove or connect. Um, so it was, it was a long time, six hours of pretty wow. intense surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this week has been, of course, um, a difficult one as well. They're, they're separate, but they've been sedated. Um, they can't, I, I don't think they've even really been moving. They're intubated. Um, and they're just laying there trying to see if this will take. 
Um, so I, they said their, their situation is stable, but critical is what they said. They were really, they've been worrying about, um, swelling, which causes lots of trouble with overworking the heart and breathing and pressure on the skin and all those new connections. But they've been, I think they're kind of, you know, and it seems like they put up these every day they have this update and sometimes Elizabeth is doing a little better. And sometimes Susanna is doing a little better. Um, the last, um, one was that Susanna was a little bit concerning. She's got some inflammation or some redness and a fever, but they can't find an infection, which maybe means there's a problem in the abdomen. Gotcha. So they were going to try and do a, an ultrasound today, perhaps to kind of, if that didn't go down last night sure, to see sure. if what they can see is going on in there. So they are, you know what they're doing? They're waiting and they are just, they wait all the time, don't they? Like they waited through the pregnancy. They wait for this. They wait for the surgery. Now they're waiting for the recovery. So they are, you know, Advent times a thousand in the waiting Oh, that's well put. And thanks for the update, because now we'll know how to pray for them. And we mm-hmm. do appreciate it. Sarah, you also wrote an article uh, a little uh, close to a month ago or a couple weeks ago called Farming Flowers to the Glory of God, a really uh, kind of inspiring story. Would you tell us the story and uh, kind of what's behind this article? Yeah, um, this is a fun one. So there's a guy, his name is Jonathan Herb, if you can believe it. Um, that's so his funny. last isn't name. That's amazing. Yes. Isn't that amazing? And he works with a girl named Julia Schwartz. And as I was talking to her, she's like, you know what? My maiden name was Flowers. No. And I was like, oh, you're kidding me. How is that possible? Um, so he, they live near Dallas. And um, Jonathan and his wife, Kendall, um, he, he, they are not farmers. Um, he just was in corporate America and then was a firefighter for a while and then would listen to his buddies talk about ranching because, you know, they're in Texas. So everybody's got a ranch. <laughs> um, and so and he's like, I'm going to get some cows. And she's like, we live in an HSA. And, and they so they bought some land and got some cows. And the more that he did the farming, the more the scriptures came alive to him. Wow. All those, you know, the an- analogies in scripture are so agrarian. And so to get your hands in the dirt and see that happening, it just made so much of that. He's like, I just, you know, fell in love with the Lord even more through doing that. So what they wanted to do is go overseas and be missionaries and bring sustainable farming practices all over the world. But what happened instead is those doors closed and the doors opened to a little farm outside of Dallas. And they have been working there um, for the past couple of years. And primarily they like to work with refugees um, they said refu- the, the great thing about it is that refugees often come from agrarian societies themselves. And mm-hmm. so that's an easier transition. They can give them some work and, and talk with them. So they've spent the last couple of years doing that. And, and it is a challenge for sure. It is not as lucrative as not working with refugees. Right. Um, but I think there's also been some beautiful conversations they've been able to have. Oh, that's was such an incredible example for all of us. Do you um do you know any of the stories? I mean, without telling too much of their private life, do you know any of the the refugee stories that are just, you know, meaningful from this farm? Yeah, the the two guys they worked with the most um were named Mahmoud and Saeed and they had escaped from Syria. Mm-hmm. Um and they were Muslim and so they just had were able to have a lot of conversations um about their faith um and and what was so interesting to me is Jonathan said, "You know, I kind of went in, you have to relearn you you think like I'm bringing the truth to you, but what you have to do and this is a Tim Keller would tell you this too is like 
let's come in and listen to like a more of a Paul approach. Like yeah. what, are, what are these gods that you are worshiping? Like, oh, you're worshiping this God. And, and let me tell you about the God I worship. Um, and so much more of a listening, open heart, um, more question asking than telling. And of mm. course, then you can get into those conversations. Um, but to move sort of alongside them instead of coming in from overhead and dropping your knowledge on top yeah. of them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's so good. And Sarah, I wonder, and I know you work in kind of the faith and work world. Um, what can we learn from the, what, what can all of us learn from his story of, of doing this for the glory of God and kind of finding his passion, right? Not just a job, but a passion. What could we learn from this? Yeah. You know, I think it's just to be open to where the Lord is leading um, and to know that even in this, you know, I asked him, I was like, man, it looks like you live a Wendell Berry life. Like mm-hmm. there you are out on the farm, you grow flowers for Pete's sake. So it's even beautiful every day when you look outside, you know, what could be more gorgeous? And he was like, no, but you know, that's not, you know, God's not calling us to, you know, move out and all farm flowers and try and get in touch to the, with the land. That's not the way to our salvation. Um, really, if, if you're an accountant in the city too, like if you're doing what the Lord is asking you to do, um, it's going to be messy and beautiful and hard and maybe not financially feel financially responsible all the time. Um, but just to be open, I think just open to what the Lord is leading you to do and just on a daily kind of mundane on the daily grind basis of like, God, what do you have for me today? What are the conversations that you have for me today? Um, you know, you make these decisions or, or God does these things just one minute at a time. Mm, oh, it's so beautiful. You can learn more about Sarah and her articles at thegospelcoalition.org and connect with her on Twitter at Sarah Zylstra. Sarah, before we let you go, you you share a lot of these stories of people who are living out their faith in their day-to-day lives. And I, I would just love to hear quickly, how has that impacted your faith? Oh, Aubrey, um, this has, these last four or five years have been the most faith strengthening. Mm -hmm. And um, when you watch God show up over and over and over and over and over again, and at first you're surprised like, oh, whoa, God showed up there. Oh, look, he's showing up there. Um, And then you start to think, "I, I think he might show up here. Like this is a really hard situation, but we're praying and we're open. And so it seems like he might. And then he does. And after a while, you're just like, this is a hard situation. I'm a hundred percent sure. I have seen this happen over and over again um, that God is going to show up mm. there. But I don't think it has to be someone in my job who's watching this happen sort of on a monumental scale. But even in your daily life of watching God show up with the pocket of quiet time to work mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, the, I don't know, maybe not the right traffic pattern, but still like just the, all the small things that mm. God shows up for. Um, the good conversation you had at dinner with your kids or, you know, all those small things that if you can pay attention, it's really just paying attention. Um, and the more you spot those, the more those are just, you know, building blocks for your faith. Oh, that's so good, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for being here with us today. We hope that encourages you listeners. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And as you've heard us say before on The Common Good, Brian and I are pastors. And so we are really passionate about you having a life-giving, thriving 
faith and experience of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Brian, I, you know, there's something that happens to all believers, um, different seasons of life bring it on or different circumstances bring it on, but that is a crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's a phrase we hear a lot, but I just wonder if you don't mind pastorally giving people a definition. Like when, when you, when you hear someone say, I'm having a crisis of faith, what do they generally mean? Uh, I think what they mean is I'm not sure that I believe this. I'm not Mm. sure what I've been taught still makes sense to me. I'm not sure what I've seen growing up in the church. A lot of this is the deconstruction we're talking, we've been talking about, but I think it's, uh, it's less about like, do I want to still go to this church? Do I want to this? And it's more about, do I actually believe this? And, you know, it's a crisis because, uh, because that's such a deep question. That's such an important question. So for me, crisis of faith is much more, do I still have faith and much less, do I want to go to this church? Do I still, am I still a part of this you know, denomination or whatever yeah. else. What do you think? What's crisis of faith? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It can it can be as, you know, insignificant as maybe you're just kind of doubting your faith that day, doubting if God is real. Or it can be like a real season of that because you've been through some type of tragedy or loss and you're like, whoa, 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 hold up. Yeah. This thing that I have like based my entire life around, what if it's false? That's a very scary crisis of faith. And I think the reality is, it can feel um, it can feel heavy. It can feel burdensome. It can feel depressing if you're walking around through a crisis of faith, because really it's like this thing that has been your anchor. You're wondering if that anchor will actually hold. Right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so, I, you know, it's important, I think, for every Christian to acknowledge that crisis of faith is actually a part of our spiritual journey. It doesn't have to be the thing that derails us. It actually can be a a powerful thing where God will meet you if you'll continue leaning in. And then I think you'll find on the other side of that crisis of faith, a a more, a more real um, experience of God than you realize before. I agree. Um, uh, Over at Relevant Magazine, they're writing about how to weather a crisis of faith. And I wanted to share some of the tips that they share, because I think it's probably really helpful for all of us who either are walking through a crisis of faith ourselves or walking with someone who is walking through a mm-hmm, crisis of mm-hmm, faith. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'll just read you the first one, Brian, and, and let you respond. But they they offer that you should approach your doubt as you would your job. And here's what they say. What is meant by this is not to work harder at asking big life questions, which might actually make you feel more crazed than you already do. But treat your faith and your faith community as you would your job in the sense of not being too quick to quit. Remember that you don't do your whole job in one day's time. Most jobs have hundreds of responsibilities when you really break them down. A season of doubt in one's faith isn't usually solved in a day. There will be times of talking with friends and church leaders, journaling, walking, worshiping, and sometimes just being before you find yourself on the other side. So try to be fair to yourself and to your doubting season and don't expect to accomplish or solve everything immediately. Here's what they say, but be willing to come back to it the next day and keep at it. What do you think about that? I think it's great. I mean, Aubrey, we've talked on this show about um, specifically about pastors quitting their jobs and that there comes seasons where you're like, I'm done. And there's other seasons you're excited. And I think this is helpful because you're having a quote unquote crisis of faith today doesn't mean that you have to scrap everything today. Mm. Work it, 
Like it's the same way if you had a bad day at your job, it doesn't mean you should quit your job today. You know, yeah, and you yeah. should take the time work, uh, f- you know, keep doing, keep work in the process. I think that's helpful. Like t- it, yeah. another way I would say this is take a deep breath. Like mm. look at the long game here, mm. right? Life's a marathon, not a sprint. And you don't have to make every decision today. Oh, that's good. That's really good. The next um, tip that they offer is to talk to people and God as honestly as possible. And, um, you know, sometimes it can feel like a struggle to open up to people, especially in your church community. Like, look, I don't even know if I think God is real, but to have really, really real conversations with trusted friends and really real conversations with God, like, God, if you're there, hello, let me know. The fact is, we say this all the time, but I think push comes to shove. It's helpful to know it's real, that God can handle that. Like God actually would rather us run to him with our doubts and our frustrations and our fears that he might not even be real than run to something else or right. run away altogether. And so it, some of the things that um, this author mentions is you might find it helpful to pray um, through writing, like write God a letter. God, mm-hmm. will you come find me? And not so that you're having to muster up faith feelings that aren't real, but you're just saying, God, I need, I need you to come get me because I, I don't know how to do this anymore. Yeah, I just think the key word there is honesty too, right? Like if mm. I'm if I'm kind of just playing a game and I'm pretending everything's good and everything's fine, you're never actually going to get to the problem because you're going to spend all your time trying to cover up that problem, right? That's this is right. true in our faith. This is true in marriage. This is true in everything. Yeah. Uh, and so there's there's that honesty element that says, you know what? I'm struggling right now and I'm going to just own the fact that I'm struggling right now. Mm-hmm. The next one they talk about is letting people pray for you, even if you are not praying. Mm. I actually had a, a friend recently who's kind of in her own deconstruction journey. And and we said, can we pray for you? And she was like, I guess. I mean, I might just be closing my eyes and I don't know who I'm praying to. But then after she was like weeping and she was like, thank you so much for praying for me. And, I, you know, I don't think we even realize that just allowing somebody else we, we borrow other people's faith, right? And so when you're allowing other people to pray over you, sometimes even just hearing the confidence in their voice, sometimes hearing their intimacy with God, sometimes just being quiet and allowing somebody else to put their hands on your shoulders, some of that helps you sort of let go. And like you said, remember to breathe and remember that like faith can be real again. Mm. Um, and sometimes it means, okay, I might not have it, but these people have it. So I'm going to lean on their faith. And that's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of the communal aspect of our Absolutely. faith. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's true. Okay. A couple other ones that they mentioned, continue to serve. So even if you're not feeling it, get out of yourself and serve other people. I think that's a good lesson for all think, of us, really. I think that one's huge, actually, because yeah. a lot of times when we're doubting our faith or we're trying to figure stuff out or whatever, we get really introspective. And I think the more mm. self-focused we get, the worse off we end up. And yeah. so I think just going, okay, I'm going to purposely serve other people, whether it be an organization or, you know, your neighbor or whatever. I actually think living out kind of how Christ has called us to live, living in this way, it can reignite. It can yeah. reignite that. And so I do think this one's huge because I think that the tendency would be I'm doubting. Therefore, I'm just going to read books and I'm just going to mm. introspect and I'm just going to walk, you know, and those are all important. Those are all yep. fine. 
but I do think actually putting yourself out there to start serving might be the actual answer here. That's good. That's really good, Brian. That's really good. All right. And the last one that they mentioned, again, this is over at Relevant Magazine, How to Weather a Crisis of Faith, is to reflect on the things of your faith that aren't so hard to believe. So, you know, perhaps you can be confident that God is love. Perhaps you can be confident at the way Jesus lived his life and how Mm -hmm. he treated Mm -hmm. people. Perhaps you can be confident in the way Jesus went after the marginalized. Those are easy things to believe. And focus on those things will help um, move your certainty into the more mysterious, bigger aspects of the faith. Yeah. I would just say if you're out there doubting, own it. Own it. It's uh, and and take some of these steps. I think these are really helpful. These are really well. And if you kind of work the process and don't give up, we fully believe that through the Holy Spirit, uh, God's going to reveal himself to you. And so I think you don't need to be scared, but I would say keep keep at it. Keep at it. Yeah, there you go. That's a good word. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about some of our favorite Christmas traditions and Christmas traditions around the world. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and it's the end of the show. We love spending the end of every show giving you something inspiring or challenging or encouraging to think about. And of course, it's that time of year when many of us have Christmas on our minds. And I thought we could talk about Christmas traditions around mm-hmm. the world. But before we do that, Brian, do you have a particular Christmas tradition that means a lot to you? Maybe uh, when you were a child in your own home or now with your own children? Yeah, you know, I listened to Ace Collins before. I'd encourage you to was, He up. was great. You, you kind of hear some traditions. And I, these are less traditions, I guess. Like I've told you before, like my family, we always watch Elf leading up to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Those types of things. Yep. But still, and, and I think most people get this, my favorite thing growing up and my favorite thing now is that moment when you wake up on Christmas morning, right? <laughs> yes. And you, you, you know, even now my kids are reaching the age where they might sleep a little later than me and I go wake them up, you know, but it used to <laughs> oh, be, maybe, it used to be they're at our bedside at 5 a.m. We'll see what oh, they do yes. this year because last year I believe they set an alarm for like 530. <laughs> um, but it's that moment. I remember it as a kid, right? That magical moment yes. when you first wake up and that you're like groggy, you're tired. Also, you go, <gasps> Christmas morning. And like, you just go. And I still feel that as an adult, right? Like totally. you wake up, but now to, have, to live it through your children is just such a joy. So I know that's not necessarily a tradition, but it's just my favorite part of Christmas. Yeah, Christmas that, morning, I, I that love moment, that. And then you tear it open all and then you've got wrapping paper everywhere. And you're like. You know what you don't do on Christmas morning, Aubrey? This this struck me. I remember last year. You know what you're not doing on Christmas morning? You're not checking your phone for emails mm, and for Twitter. Wow! Like you're like it's That's one. So it's probably the time where I at least find it the easiest to be most present. Like I don't want to be anywhere else but doing Christmas morning right now. So how about you? Any traditions you'd like to share? Oh, I you know I just I love thinking about that too. Like I remember as a kid, I used to get up and like run out to the living room Mm -hmm. to like, oh, did Santa come? Are there presents there? And even as a teenager, I was doing that. And then I would go back to bed and be so excited. Eventually, I would wake up my sister. She would wake me up. And so, yeah, there is something so like that delightful expectation is Mm -hmm. so fun. You know, we we have a lot of traditions around Advent. I, I know I've said before that we light a candle together every night and we read a passage of scripture and we have a whole thing. We turn out all the lights in the house and 
when we light the candle, we yell like as at the top of our lungs, Jesus came to be the light of the world. <laughs> then we light things back up. And that's very fun. That's really fun for us. We actually have a set of um, and we have an advent calendar that my grandparents made. They made the ornaments. They made the actual calendars all made out of wood and hand painted. And so now that my kids are participating in this thing that my grandparents made for me, that's really fun too. That's a tradition. I hope that fun. continues, you know, uh, along the generations. But um, the other tradition that we we did as a kid was my parents let us open one present on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And so we've taken that and a lot of families I know do this. We let our kids open their Christmas pajamas on Christmas Eve. So they don't we get do another the present. But they, oh, you do. See, that's so fun. Carrie uh, always gets Christmas pajamas. Now, I grew up, I've told you before, I'm I'm Norwegian. And so kind of Scandinavian tradition is like yeah. Christmas Eve is kind of bigger than Christmas Day in some level. Interesting. Levels. Okay. And so there was this window between like, Whenever we got home from church at the Christmas Eve service, so maybe, you know, six, seven o'clock or whatever, uh, until Christmas morning, there was that window, which was like the greatest 12 to 15 hours of the year, because you'd come home and all my relatives would come over and it was always at our house and there would be a big meal, you know, uh, and then you'd open all the gifts from your relatives. So in many ways, you got more gifts oh, on ow. that night, but all of your family gifts and Santa and whatever waited till Christmas morning. So there was like the rush of Christmas of Christmas Eve. And then you kind of played with your toys as that went to bed and got up and, and then you had your, your like family Christmas. And I remember that like 15 hour window was like overload. It was just an over, it was so fun. And so <laughs> that is uh, awesome. Yeah. Now, okay. So speaking of Scandinavian traditions, the mm. History Channel, history.com has shared some Christmas tradition around the world. They also mention Scandinavian countries honor St. Lucia. Did you do that growing up? No, I, I had very few actual uh, <laughs> Scandinavian. Okay, gotcha, uh, gotcha. Stuff. We'd have some of the food and stuff, but. Uh, if you came to my house for our Christmas, even though we were Norwegian, it was very American. <laughs> okay, very American. Okay, well, let me, let me ask if you know, do you know about Finland Haivajula? I don't know. I was reading through this. I don't know any of these. No. I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but many Finns visit the sauna on Christmas Eve. I love this. Listen, because it involves radio. Families gather and listen to the national piece of Christmas radio broadcast. Yeah, I just think it's odd that many Finns visit the sauna. And then later <laughs> in the paragraph, it says it's customary to visit the grave sites of yeah. departed family members. So you're like going to the sauna and right. then to the graveyard. Like it's just that's a weird Christmas it's, tradition. It's right a now. very weird, but they might look at ours and say they're very weird. Okay, do you have any from these uh, Christmases around the globe you want to share? Uh, you know, the Germany one here, it says actually the tradition of decorating Christmas trees comes from Germany. Decorating awesome. evergreen trees had always been a part of the German winter solstice tradition. And the first Christmas trees explicitly decorated and named after the Christian holiday appeared in uh, Strasbourg in the beginning of the 17th century. And so if you've ever wondered uh, where the Christmas tree came from, that's where the History Channel is telling us that's kind of where Germany is kind of the origin. Well, and Ace Collins, who was on earlier today, talked about how uh, Martin Luther was the first one who lit a candle and put it on a tree. But I, I have always... I have so much anxiety around that because yes. how did the tree not catch on fire? You know, it there were a lot of fires did. that started. It yeah, probably. Did. Yes. I'm yes, glad yes, we've yes. moved on to Christmas lights. Okay. In Norway, I didn't know this. Norway is the birthplace of the Yule log. The there ancient Norse used the Yule log in their celebration of the return of the sun at winter solstice. Solstice. Yule comes from the Norse word. 
Norse word hjul, meaning wheel. The Norse believed that the sun was a great wheel of fire that rolled towards and then away from the earth. Ever wonder why the family fireplace is such a central part of the typical Christmas scene? It dates back to the Norse Yule log. Oh, that's fun. Okay, no, no, let, me like give you, let me give you one more that I found interesting. Okay. And then they, the one from England, it's the exact story that Ace Collins told us earlier. But in Mexico, uh, see if you can figure out, figure out this word. In 1828, an American minister to Mexico, his name was Joel R. Poinsett. Oh, brought a red and green plant from Mexico to America as its coloring seemed perfect for the new holidays. The plants, which were called poinsettias after poinsett, began appearing in greenhouses as early as 1830. In 1870, New York stores began to sell them at Christmas. By 1900, they were the universal symbol of the holiday. That's where we get the poinsettias. That's interesting. Oh, that's so fun. Well, we would love to hear about your Christmas traditions growing up or even around the world. You can share those with us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Common Good Talk. If nothing else, we hope that delights your soul and ignites your imagination to have Mm -hmm. some fun Christmas traditions with your family this year. Brian and I'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.